it's crazy right now with interest rates, right? And so, yes, no matter how well we perform on the 600, the exit value, a lot of that is going to have to do with the buyer who buys it from us and what interest rate they're able to get on their debt. And how much cap rate compression yeah. or expansion there's so, going to be. Right. So what you were seeing cap rates, stuff was starting to trade at you know fours, three and a half caps. Well, now when you see debt coming in at five, right, you're, you're starting to be like, well, now buying it a four cap, you can only put up, say, it has to be like a loan to value of like 50% for the deal even to make sense. Right. Okay. So just this number, like small thing. Uh, yes. On changes? De- death by paper cuts, The biggest right? thing is coordination amongst, amongst drawings. Like we right now have a fairly major cost exposure because the sill of the windows that run 90 feet down the driveway are literally a foot and a half below the dirt because the civil engineer shows the finished grade of the driveway here and the architect didn't like put the two drawings and he just drew the sill of the windows here. And we're just like, all kidding? It, and it would have been a zero cost. Yeah. If he had just, when we poured the foundation, they would have charged us no more money to go mm-hmm. up two feet higher. Totally. Our right. glass would have been smaller. Our wall would have been two feet higher and the dirt would have run into the side perfectly. It's just lack of detail or, coordina- or coordination or both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, or like our shower pans were specified. Uh, our showers were shown on the architectural drawings in a size that no shower pan was like available in. So the, the showers were all framed to the architecturals. And then the plumber was like, that doesn't work. So then we had to like just adjust, you know, even 85 unit buildings. So you're adjusting a, a wall three feet wide, but 85 times. And again, it's yeah. the cost of a Lexus. Right. We're talking about he sh- a lot of them, the shower pans, he showed like six foot showers, which no one does six foot showers. Everyone does five. Yeah. So we don't know why he showed six, but he did. So he did six showers. But like, at least if he had done six foot showers, exactly to the size of the pan, we would have been okay. We would have just paid for the bigger pans. What ended up happening is he was off by like two inches. So now every single one of the showers and tubs needed to be furred up. Oh, actually, that was uh, was a question. What is the... Yeah, let's just roll. What's the ratio of walk-in showers to tubs? I think we did every unit that has... The two beds got tubs and all the... uh, One tub, one shower. And then all of the studios and one scut showers. Okay. Stand-up showers. Which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. there's there's minimal tubs in the whole building because there's not many two beds. There's 25 two beds. I'm trying to think of other yeah, another issue we ran into were the bathroom exhaust fans. So yeah. you know what what becomes Benzing. really what becomes really important on a bigger building is fire separations and things that we sort of Hey, we'll put two layers of five eighths drywall around that and call it good because you have six bathroom fans on a six on this building. You can just build a little back box, but once you start doing that 140 times, it's huge dollars. So we had to figure out a way to get the bathroom exhaust fan into the sidewall, which is already a rated enclosure. And hmm. yeah, I think you know the main thing is when you're looking at the set of plans on the small projects, you don't have to take such a deep dive of like finishes and what the actual fixture selections are. And on these larger projects, you have to dig into every little thing over the months leading into construction. Because when you sign that GMP contract, you own exactly what's in that plan. Time like, freezes. It's That's it. And it's not like, you know, and, and it is not as easy as like on our projects, say you don't like the pendants. You just go, hey, I'm just not going to order these ones. I'm going to order these ones. Doesn't work that way. Like a lot a more change, a lot more changes in the field. 
life, buying lighting fixtures on a big job. Why is that? You know, is because, that just because the they plan? Do they look at the actual fixture and like I I need to account for fifteen minutes for install or, or what's the reason? They, it's something of a monopoly for one. Yeah, they look at it like this. They say, and it's it's ridiculous, but they're like, oh, this is what you ordered. This is going to be installed at this rate. If you change it, they try to charge you before change. you buy it. Before you supply even, it, even yeah, any, yeah, any well before you any, bought those yeah, lights, any change they want to then cha- they'll try to charge you change order rate. So they'll say instead of it being you know thirty dollars an hour for the guy, they want to charge you forty five for the guy, it's, even though the physical connection and everything about it is identical and it's not any larger, or smaller, weighs more. It's just well, and then that's why on that like that change order we had, it came in at like seventy five thousand. We ended up pushing back and being like, well, guys. We're not going to pay you change order rate on a light fixture that's the same, you know, amount of work, which should still be the same rate at least. And so, like, they dropped that to like forty grand. Yeah, it still got hit. It was like the it was like the return, the credit was on the same hour of labor was less than when you were buying that same hour of labor. And Ricky, you're very you know acutely pointed out that that doesn't seem right. Yeah, especially for something you haven't purchased. It's not on site. You're not asking them to swap it. You're not adding the number of fixtures. You're not changing that quantity, right? Yeah. And I mean, what you see on a lot of these things is that they they just, the credits that you get is almost nothing. And the ups, the upcharges is huge. So like, how do you- The debits of, are always more than the credits. Yeah. When, when yeah. you're going into the project, right? And you're putting your GMP together and you're specifying all of these fixtures and finishes. I mean, what happens like with, a re- with the reality of COVID right now, which is- Things can go out of stock very quickly, so just you have to eat it if you, if you literally can't We're, buy. Our 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 methodology is really just like buy as much as you can as quickly as you can. Like if you have to store it and warehouse it, let us know the cost. We'll maybe we'll pay for the storage. If you have to touch a material twice, fine. But just like let's control that product. Yeah, I mean, a storage you, you, costs. Seems are you a lot able cheaper. to specify any like owner or developer purchased materials in a GMP? Yeah, so we contract. Did. You can. And like what we ended up doing on, on some products is we ended up pulling it out of the scope of that sub. So for example, like the plumbing fixtures, when we got back their proposal of what they were going to be paying for like Vigo fixtures, which is what we wanted to use, I was able to reach out to Vigo directly and be like, what price will you sell me these directly for? And it was like 30 or $40 per fixture less. So we just said to the plumber, Please remove that from your scope. We're going to order this directly. Yeah. So you can do it. It's just, but they 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 don't want to warranty it. You have to like, who's going to store it? Who's going to be responsible for it? No, I'll give do you get guys- a, do you get a credit that's worthwhile? You get in the terms you, of that? in that scenario, we were going to get the credit exactly from what was on the, the well because you're not changing the actual. Well, what product. Help, what helps is to also call these things out ahead of time. So we have a schedule of values from that subcontractor that breaks out, this is what my plumbing fish is worth. And it wasn't because we were geniuses or thought of this ahead of time. It's just because that's how they get paid. They bill against those specific line items. So when they when they say, you know, uh, I'm going to give you this much money back, it's pretty tough to lie when you have that right there. So you're inclined to try to ask for as many breakouts early on as you can and understand the components adding up to the number. Yeah, I think and like one of the things we saw on our project and on now I'm seeing on these other big ones we're working on is you look at like an interior designer and you take the the idea of an interior designer and from what I'd always thought of it being like, oh, they pick pretty, they put the things together and pick colors that look really good and, and that's what their job is. On these large projects, they are so much more important 
to make sure that the finished schedules and that everything is detailed in the plans and it matches up to the architecturals. And that, that, that includes like locations of light fixtures, heights of light fixtures. How is that going to all lay out? And so, you know, looking yeah. at that relationship, it's, it's not just being a designer and picking cool colors and stuff. This is like very detailed work yeah. that is vital to these projects. And I assume they're, you know, are you giving them guidance in terms of, hey, here's our unit costs that we're trying to hit? Or do you go into that kind they're, of detail They're designing well? to a budget. Yeah. And I think that, the, you know, what we've seen is we, we tried, you, you know, you try to pull them back. Right. And I think because everybody might pick out like, oh, here's the restoration hardware, you know, beautiful pendant. But it's like I'm not paying yeah. you know, $400 a pendant. And I think there's reputations out there from different interior design firms that go in different directions. Right. Like if you're doing, you know, the Lucas in the South mm. End, you know, want, you might want the highest end finishes and you want them to go crazy because you're going to going to demand those self sellouts. Whereas like the interior designing team that we work with at TAT on the on our project, they're very developer focused and understand that like, Hey, there's a budget. We need to pick tiles that are, you know, under $6 a foot or $7 a foot and not be picking, you know, crazy prices. So, I mean, look, we just, we just paid a change order for flooring material for our club room. And it's like, you have a finished schedule that calls out the flooring types for every room in the building. But for whatever reason, this specific amenity space had no flooring specified. Thus, what we owned was a gypcrete or plywood floor so we had to pick a flooring and pay for it and that's that's the type of uh you know do you feel that obviously this is a, you know we're talking about a larger project but if what at what size project do you think you can self-perform versus be your own gc hire a general contractor and do you think if you do self-perform you'd have more control over some of these things and and not maybe get dinged as much from a change order perspective. Yeah, so I think it's it really comes down to it what size do does timeline and efficiency of the project equal out to cost? Cuz of course you can build it for less if you do yeah. it whether it's, you know, me and EJO general contracting or you know self performing you're able to build it for less, but are you going to be able to hit a timeline and have the project move as efficiently if you went with a larger GC? So, I mean, right now we have our 15 unit in Dorchester that we're starting in the next few months, we're going to self-perform that, you know, with, in partnership with, with, with EJO. And I think that as of right now, that's even a big step for us to be able to do a building of that size. Cause it's a large property. It's almost 30,000 square feet. It's like a decent size. Oh, that's big. Yeah. They're big units. It's a, there's a lot, a big garage. So I think that's right on the line. Like, I think if you're going to go any bigger than that, you need to have a full-time staff that's on site overseeing it to keep the project moving mm -hmm. makes sense well hey everybody it's episode 81 real estate <laughs> addicts your host ray hurtel rh investment group yeah we got ricky in the house what's up ricky what's up, up? ricky bellavo part part two are we Vol just skipping intros v10 volne evo boston i feel like you've accumulated a few more hats yeah volne management bathrooms of insta <laughs> everything of insta right yeah but you're not a boat owner no boats, no, no freedom boats. boat club, no boat owner. Why? You're not a boat guy. <laughs> not a boat or guy. He just likes being a guest on other people's boats. Yeah, so anyone who's I listening and wants to invite me out on your boat, shoot me a DM. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a Yeti cooler and he brings it with him. He's a good guest. You are. Yeti is good. Were you are you are a second guest? Oh, well, we had an intro episode and then you were you were episode number two, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So a lots a lots changed since then. Yeah, I, I know. think we were we you know when we were 
talk if you're talking social media and you were doing a lot of you know like three six nine unit condo developments you had a, a rental portfolio and now it's like a couple years later you're just you know i feel like you've kind of just exploded into a lot of different arenas and you've you're doing a lot of larger multifamily. you know you started a real estate brokerage so tell us about kind of that progression and kind of i guess why why what led you to that yeah. So, I mean, I think from the standpoint of the development side, you know, obviously our core business is still the smaller developments, right? So we still have five or six active construction sites where we're doing four to 15 unit projects and we'll continue to do that, right? So we'll continue to fill the pipeline. We'll continue to permit and we'll continue to build those through rolling capital. I think what I wanted to expand into was just the larger scale entitlements and that's kind of what we started in 2018 when I started V10 development. Me and my partner wanted to look at permitting larger scale, more influential type of projects, which the first one we did was obviously the 600, which is the one that's under construction right now, 85 units in Everett, followed by permitting and entitling the Cove in Worcester, which is 173 units, and then Sky Tower, which is 385 units. So I think the goal for me was to continue to grow as a developer. And I thought the next step was to move out of the small projects into a, a larger project. And I hopefully the building's not falling. Uh, I think that's the trash compactor getting emptied. Or something. Uh, God Sorry. telling you, be careful. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people had always told me, don't make the jump into the big projects. It's like people warn you, you're like, that's where people get buried you know, stick with what's working. I just had always thought that there was more to the real estate development space and I wanted to experience that. And so, you know, that's kind of when I made the jump into these larger projects. And when you say you wanted to get into the entitlement of it, you mean not just entitlement, but build and, and operate and whether it's hold it and operate it or, or sell it depending on the product type. Right. So I think, you know, obviously the main, I, I always look at the most important thing is pipeline and also creating value through entitling, right? We're not buying projects that are fully entitled. We're trying to find land, permit it for something more, create a ton of value, and then be able to either sell that approval or to build it. And I think when we were looking at the 600, we had offers to sell, but it was also, if we were to just become the developer that permits and sells, it, when you go back to the community and you want to present a project, it's like, oh, well, yeah, you're just going to permit and hand it off to somebody else. So it's like, we didn't want to start off on that path. So I was like, no, we are going to do what we said we would do. We permitted it. We designed, you know, designed a building we're proud of, and we're going to deliver it, you know, to the, to the city of Everett. And that's what we're going to do. Will there be times that we permit and sell and just go through the entitlement? Of course. But I think we're, you know, the, the goal is to have multiple projects going so you can build some and sell some. Makes sense. Not to have your options open. Are you holding a lot of these larger projects? Or are they are they for sale development or are they holds? So as of right now, all these all the large projects are uh, long term holds, right? So these would be you know rental properties that we're looking at from a standpoint of typically a holding period of either three to over ten years, right? So uh, you know when we ran the the pro forma on the six hundred, we're looking at it at an exit between five and seven years. So build the building for about, take about two years and have it stabilized, then hold it for two to three years. And at that point you would exit. Um, the Cove project in Worcester is a little bit different because we're doing that as an opportunity zone deal. 
So we raised all of the equity as capital gains and all of our equity went in as a capital gain as well. So that deal has to be a 10-year hold. OZ. As an OZ. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to allow us to all, you know, all of us to take tax-free gains upon the sale at 11 years. You know, that one, the docs are drafted in a way that it's restricted to sell because everyone would be, would have huge tax implications if we sold. Your investors. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, I assume, yeah. So kind of piggybacking on that. So I assume you're raising capital now for a lot of these larger projects and were you raising capital before for the smaller stuff? Or was that all kind of self-performed by yourself? Yeah. So it was all early on, it was all friends and family, you know, like like the main investors is my mom and father. That's where it really started out. And then it grew to other friends that would invest. When you moved into these larger deals, obviously that's when you are looking at accredited investors and you're going through the whole process of, you know, making sure they're accredited, going through all the docs and then raising the capital. So like on the 600, we raised 10 million. And then on the Worcester deal, we raised 22 million. And Different so, ball game. Yeah. Those are big numbers. Those yeah. are not small numbers. Yeah. So there's- there- But were you getting that from like individuals, uh, credit investors, or like one group giving you the bulk of that? How do you come up with $22 million? Yeah. So the the deal in Worcester- The tree in his backyard. <laughs> yeah. The, the Worcester deal is actually Origin Property Group is the overall group that, over, that, that put the money in. But because it's an OZ deal- Every investor has to invest personally, right? Because you need to put in your own gains. So it's actually check sizes ranging from five hundred thousand to six million. That that's what raised all the way to the twenty-two million. Wow. On the deal on the six hundred, we did a five million dollar pref equity raise followed by LP. So we had five million come in in a pref position, followed by five million in LP. Um, so in the in terms of the you know for just simplifying it for our listeners. What does that mean, right? Yeah. And and who gets, does somebody get paid first or do people get paid kind of in tandem? Yeah, so the way that deal was structured is the pref equity gets they, their money back first. After, after the bank. After, well, yeah, so they sit, it goes bank, then- yeah. bank, The bank's always first. Right. Well, they're giving you cheap money, so. Yeah, yeah right. bank first, then the pref equity investor. So in the end on that deal, we were looking at them getting about a 22% IRR, whereas the LP who sits behind them is at a 28 IRR. So they're getting about a 5% bump on IRR because they sit at the lowest level on the stack. And they're getting paid last. And so that is that mainly through like a capital event or basically do they have to wait to the, the end of the life of ownership? Exactly. So the pref equity will most likely get almost all of their money back during the first refinance, right? Which is the goal when you have pref equity, you typically would want to put it in a structured in a way that at that first refinance, you're able to pay that off and stop the the tick of their IRR. And then every, and after that, they'd all become, L, they all run forward just like LP. And then the way we structured that is there was actually a step down. So once they receive their money back, their equity stake in the deal drops. Got it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how the, uh, we were able to get those separate IRRs. Is that like crystallizing the waterfall? Is that, is that the concept behind it? Yeah. So well, typically with a crystallization event, it's when you create a fake sale. So in a deal where, like the one on one of these, you'd actually have a refinance. So it would appraise, you take out a loan at say 75% or 80% loan to value, you would receive in a bunch of cash, and then that would be what you would use to start paying back the investors. When you are executing a deal and using a crystallation event, you would have three appraisals done. And at that point, the value would be set. 
And although no one actually gets any real tangible money, you decide at that point what your ownership stake is going forward. It's like you shift things around right. based on the new value of the building. Yeah. So for example, like on the Worcester project, we're doing that as an OZ deal. So there won't be an, an exit until after 11 years. Instead of doing a crystallization event, what we ended up agreeing to with our, L, our, our LP investors is we just actually came to terms with what we felt a fair crystallization number would be upon stabilization. And that's how we set the ownership stake from day one. Interesting. Right. And so what if you crush your... So it goes both it goes ways. both ways, right? Yeah. Right? So we left, we could leave money on the table, say the building, say, you know, say in the end, we it gets appraised and it's way higher than we expected. We would have left it money on the table. If it doesn't perform as well, they would have left money on the table, right? And so, you know, I think there's, you know, two sides of it. You could say, well, what's your incentive to perform, right? Which would be an argument. I think we have multiple deals going with them. So they're, they understand that our goal is to drive this to, to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and now, how are you um, comparing these opportunities? Like, it's one thing if I have four bids on wood flooring, I can pretty much put them side by side by side. But you have all these different permutations and, you know, levers, and this guy's offering that. Are you using any debt brokerage? Are you going out to these different banks and lenders? Um, yourself and how, how do you, uh, you know, make a selection? So, yeah. So, I mean, we ended up raising on the 600, that one came up in the start of COVID is when we went to raise the money and we just went out and raised it ourselves. I think in hindsight, by doing it myself and having these multiple tiers of investors, it really complicated the conversations. So I think, you know, the cleaner you can raise capital from a standpoint of it's easy to explain, mm -hmm. you're going to be in a much better position. So like, if I look at a deal, my preference would be to do a 90-10 where it's 90% LP, 10% of my capital, and then that's it. It's just a straight with hurdles, you know? So say an eight, a 12, and an 18, right? Very clean. Everyone understands how that can function. When you start to add in pref equity or mes debt, it just starts to make it more complicated. Explain that a little further, the eight, the 12, the different hurdles. Yeah. So on a the way a deal, uh, like a typical deal structure would be is the GP would put up 10% of the capital. The LP would put up 90%. That's what their stake is of returns from day one. Then as so the they're 90% equity, LPs share 90% in equity of the of the cash, cash flows. And so you make $10,000 free cash flow, 9,000 goes to the investor. Exactly. Got it. And so then when you look at the deal on the hurdle standpoint, most of the time, these hurdles are really hit upon a event of a sale, right? Or a recap. Or a recap. And so what you'll do is you'd have the original 90-10, and then you might set the first hurdle at, say, an 8. And after an 8% 8, 8 IRR, the future distributions would be split. Instead of 90-10, might go 70-30, right? So mm -hmm. then 70-30. And then after, say, a 12, it might go to 60-40. Mm -hmm. And then after an 18 it might hit 50-50. So like, that's why when you look at the model, the hurdles is what allows the GP to have extremely high returns on their side of the deal. While the LP is LP still getting great returns, they're just not gonna get the three, four, five, 10 X returns that you can get on the GP side, right? Because yeah. as, as you do better and as the LPs hit their Well, their it, incenti returns, it incentivizes the GP to outperform. There is always that, pers that that incentive, but what I'm saying is, if it does actually perform well, just those hurdles and the splits changing favors the GP. But again, 
it also insulates the LPs from kind of not achieving at least a base level, right? So, you know, if you don't perform well, then you're not getting much, but your LPs will still get the bulk of it. I'm a little bit cynical of the notion that it incentivizes the GP to perform as though the GP has like all of this ability <laughs> to really influence that final IRR. Like, I, I guess I keep, I, I defer to you guys, but like, what do you think? You're, you're going to work as hard as possible to make it as successful as possible. The market is very powerful. Well, let's big. talk about maybe your strategy with having the brokerage, right? And that probably, that probably ties in because you have, you know, an army of people who are out there selling and I assume they'll be leasing up when you're ready, right? Yeah. Well, I think on, we'll just hit on Mark's point a little bit there. And like the IRR, it's crazy right now with interest rates, right? And so, yes, no matter how well we perform on the 600, the exit value, a lot of that is going to have to do with the buyer who buys it from us and what interest rate they're able to get on their debt. And how much cap rate compression yeah. or expansion there's so, going to be. Right. So what you were seeing cap rate stuff was starting to trade at, you know, fours, three and a half caps. Well, now when you see debt coming in at five, you're starting to be like, well, buying it a four cap, you can only put up, say, it has to be like a loan to value of like 50% for the deal even to make sense. Right. So I think you're starting to see, and that's you know a factor that when we started the project, we wouldn't have known that by the time we come to finish, interest rates would have gone from three to five, but it's it's a factor you have to deal with. So your rates are floating right now and, and that perm debt isn't going to happen, obviously, until you're st more stabilized. At what point do they let you kind of get to that stabilization so you can so from talking to different banks and different brokers you can try to find a a loan to come in before you are stabilized you know at co but to get the best returns and the best rate they're going to want to see the building at say 70 to 90 percent leased up and so you've proven your cash flow is the loan you have on say the 600 is a is it kind of attempt to perm so is it like a is it a floating rate and then it gets once you get your C of O, does it switch over and it, the rate resets it? So we actually were able to, since when we locked that in, we were able to do a fixed rate. So that, that's, that, that rate's that's fixed. A, that's great. awesome. Yeah. So it's fixed rate through construction. And then we've got- a, we have, oh, Through construction. And, and then we have three more years. Oh, okay. So we, we can keep this loan for, I think it's up to five years. Gotcha. Um, there's like prepayment penalties of like a point um, after the construction finishes. But in some scenarios, you you know it, you can look at that and you can say that could be a hindrance because you have to pay a prepayment penalty. For us, we were like, well, let's let's just have the ability to leave the same loan in place if need be for the next. And now it's looking years. like a smart thing yeah. because of interest Genius. rates. Yeah, I mean, well, I think we're at like a you know our construction debt is in like a you know low fours. So in the end, yeah, the, the loan will probably still be uh, the the right thing to do over the next couple of years. Do you want to name the lender? So that one's with Hingham Savings. Nice. Yeah. We're with those we had a delicious, delicious dinner with them last night. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Didn't see you there. No. Did too you bad. Get the invite? <laughs> 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 no, they've been great to work with. I think, you know, one thing you see on these on these projects is that there's a lot that goes into those disbursement reviews. And it's not like the smaller projects where you're just like, Hey, uh, here's some pictures, uh, yeah. you know, the work's done. And then, you know, maybe they come out and look, or maybe they just go with the, you know, the photos, distribute the money, you know, obviously Mark, you know, Mark's are working as the owner's rep on the project and he oversees that, but it's, there's a lot of steps that go into getting funds. And then Hingham has been amazing a partner in that, and that we haven't had any delays. 
no real pushbacks. We've been able to get funded, get the money into the GC's hands to keep the project moving. Tell you that, that's one thing that's the same on a small project or a big one. It's like, what keeps the projects moving? Money. Draws. Yeah. yeah. You know, nothing stops a project like, you know, when the, when the liquidity dries up a little bit. I'd like to take a quick break to thank our sponsor, First Boston Capital Partners. David Grossman is a great local lender. If you have a project that you're looking to finance, feel free to reach out to us. We can put you in touch with him. They're fast. They're flexible. They have a lot of options available, both on the debt and equity side. So any financing needs, feel free to reach out. And back to our episode. Are you over-raising for these projects? So do you have a kind of a cushion? Yeah. So so on, you know, we we built in a decent-sized contingency on that project. I think when we we ended up executing that, doing it as a fixed price contract and not a GMP. So anyone who doesn't understand how the, the guaranteed max price is means that there's contingencies typically on both sides, whether it's the GC has their own contingency, the developer has their contingency, and you're working towards a guaranteed max price. And then there might be some type of shared savings on those contingencies. What we ended up doing is we moved the deal forward as a GMP, and then prior to actually executing, we pivoted it to a fixed price contract. What that does is it got us a little bit of a discount on the purchase price, but also we have no access to their contingency. So if they, for example, the, the total project costs 19 million of hard cost on that deal. If they build it for 17, they get the $2 million. On a GMP, if they build it for 2 million less, you'd either get 100% of that or you do a split on it. But from our standpoint, we looked at it and we said, with everything going on with the inflationary environment, lumber prices going up, we felt that the best decision was just to say, you know, a fixed price. And Mark can speak also on all the, the factors that go into like overseeing a GMP because versus a fix. Right. I've never done. Well, yeah. you, you so you said that they could you could potentially get a hundred percent of the savings back in a GMP. I mean, you could if if, if or is it typically negotiated? It's negotiated, but like many con general contractors will allow um you know the contingency to go entirely back to the owner i i personally think that's fair it's your money and if it's spent i mean i think the gc it's similar to our conversation about the gp acting to make the irr as high as possible like i don't know that you need to be incentivized to do that you, gc should be incentivized to perform and execute the project the most efficient way possible but if you need to give them 30 percent of that pot of money at the end then yeah because that was my that was kind of yeah. similar to our, our conversation earlier is like mm. what if you're getting 100 percent of saving what incentivizes them to come in under budget it, it all comes back to like you know anyone who's in this business who's trying to be successful whether they're a general contractor or developer is that you expect them to do their best whether for future business yeah, and, whether and, you know, whether or business. not there's extra profits on it for them the goal should be to get the project done on time and on budget yeah. if it comes in under you know, i think there's there's you know something to be said for them getting a portion of that but then as we've, you know, you can see, and I've heard horror stories, it's like when you get into a GMP and there's a shared savings, what's the incentive to really drive that number down on the front end? Yeah. Right. So say you, if you're looking at it and you're like, well, we could probably push these subs and get this to a 19 million. Well, no, let's just sign the GMP at 20 because there's a million dollars of juice there. Oh, I see. And so you think they'll, they might overbid it at the beginning to well, kind of- You know, they might not, they, you don't buy out all your subs at the start, right? Like right. you have a job, you might have your major trades pretty much committed, signed up, 
But for the most part, you're committing to the owner for a certain number, and then you're going to methodically go through and buy out each of the trade over time. And at each time you sit at the table with your flooring guy, with your painter, with this guy, you know, you look at their proposal and you say like, hey, look, is there anything additional you have? Ricky's really aggressive on painting here. I'm going to call Dan once more to give me your best and final number. And whatever largesse, um, you know, or escape savings you can pick up, that typically will funnel into that shared savings and then be split. And so, yeah, I guess you could argue that someone may like the uh, baseline to be set high so that you can fill that bucket and then each of you take a piece. Well, if it's a GMP scenario, that that really means guaranteed maximum price. So wouldn't they also try to be sensitive to the fact that what if they just had a GMP and they went over and they had to eat it, right? So, I mean, there could be some of that happening. Yeah, that, that's another uh, incentive. Because they can't go back to the well once you've guaranteed the I mean, price, nor, I assume. Nor can they on a lump sum deal, but. I guess what it comes down to is in this kind of what we touched on before, it's like, yeah, if you have a perfectly tight set of plans and that you say, build exactly to what we're specifying, Yes, they could not charge you more. Mm. If there's any weaknesses in the plans or anything that's labeled incorrectly or sized incorrectly, all of those are change orders and they will all come back to bite you. Yes, of course, if you if you hit you know hit the building right as it should be built, but that's just not how this world works. That's not reality. Yeah. <laughs> so what should somebody assume a reasonable percentage, we'll call it, of their budget will will get absorbed into these change orders that just happen by nature is so, there is there kind of a number that we're comfortable I with i mean typically you're seeing from a gc side three to five percent of a con on the contingency side and then on of hard costs of hard costs and then the developer would try to carry the same so somewhere between three to five so if you're looking at the deal uh somewhere if you take the gc side and your side six to ten percent would be the range and a lot of times that's going to depend on how far along you are in the set of plans by the time you execute the GMP, right? Is this a, is this permits issued plans are at 99% done, you know, as close as they're going to get to being complete, or are you executing this when you're only at like a 50% or 60% set of plans, the earlier you are, the earlier on you are, the higher the amount of contingency you should carry. Got it. Man, I'll give you a real compliment. I feel like you've absorbed a lot and, yeah. and you really pick it up well. Thank you. So. I mean, there's definitely, it's, it's been a crazy journey and there's just, it's such a different world yeah. having moved into the larger scale projects, but it's one of those things. It's like, until you, you know, until you get into the waves and like, try to figure it out, you're, you're never going to learn it. So do you feel like it's hard to bounce between the large projects and the small projects? Cause it's so different. I would, I think if you were here from my team, they probably think I'm a, you know, I'm a pain in the ass now because I have more expectations of yeah. like the way we should be organized and like the way the project should move and the timelines and the, the attention to detail. Cause you watch like, you know, Callahan knows exactly to the day what they're currently projecting the project to finish. Right. And so, you know, that's kind of the expectations that I'm passing along to on the smaller projects. I'm like, guys, we can do this. There's no reason why we can't perform in the same fashion that these larger GCs are. So I think that's one thing that you're seeing is like- It's I'm, probably helping. Yeah, you're, the, we're learning a lot from these relationships on the larger projects and how, how the bigger, more established firms function and taking that and trying to do it on the smaller scale. Nice. Seems like you, you really listen though. And like we're in a meeting together once a week as far as like leadership styles um, and sort of commanding a team, what, what advice do you have or like what's been successful for you? 
So, I mean, I think it always comes back to surrounding yourself with people that are smarter than you, right? And so, you know, when we were heading into this project, you know, I knew that we needed to bring on you and, you know, other owners reps who had been through this ringer before and had, you know, come out the other side successfully because I hadn't before, right? So I think, you know, on on any of these projects, bringing in the right team that's already been, have done it successfully. And so when we were looking at moving into the 600, we we had multiple quotes, right, mm-hmm. for, for who the GC was going to be. We had ranging anywhere from like 16 and a half million up to like 23 million. Right. So pretty wide scale. And in the end, we ended up selecting Callahan, who was kind of in the middle. Right. So not the 16 or 17 million, not the 23, 22 million. They were kind of dead center, but they had a really they were really established and had a a lot of credibility. And that's what we needed. Right. It was my first big project. I needed a GC that had done this a thousand times. Right. Not a GC who is is their third project, even though they're giving us great prices. You don't need two people who don't know what they're doing, right? Like, <laughs> I, I would only qualify that. Like the numbers, those $16 million numbers aren't necessarily like a commitment or a hard bid. They're offering a budget based on very early schematic designs of sort of where they think it's going to come out. But ultimately, they're not signing a contract with you until the drawings are really evolved and they have uh, real pricing from real subs. Um, so I I think it takes a mature perspective to not get really drawn and attracted to those low budgets. Um, yeah, I think because, it's, yeah. And on any of these projects, I think one thing that's the biggest, uh, you know, nemesis on any successful project is the running out of capital, right? So don't try to lie to yourself and say, oh, we're going to be able to build it for this, or we're going to be able to get savings. Or we're going to, you know, you're, you're much better off having a contingency that you don't use and when we were on, you know, when we're looking at these contingencies right now, it's like, oh, that seems like so much money, like five or six hundred thousand dollars. It's not. It's not. It goes quickly. And so I think, you know, any any deal you're getting into, you're better off having a nice cushion, right? And having the investors look at that and say, we're comfortable with this deal, even if this contingency gets used to hundred percent. And hopefully you only use 70% of it. Well, and if it doesn't, you can return it to your investors at the end right. of the project. You could either return it or you could fund, you know, fund it right into the development's account, you know, as yep. it starts leasing up. Yep. Um, so I think that that's something that everyone should try to do is like, don't kid yourself on your contingency, like how much you're going to carry. Yeah. Yep. I like it. So why the brokerage? So, yeah. So Evil Real Estate Group, um, we formed, what now, three or four years ago. The thought behind it was originally I had been acquiring rental properties was step one. Step two is the development company. So started doing development projects. Step three was a management company. So we started the management company, manage about 650 units now, ranging condos or rentals. And so once those were all checked, I was the, the next step was to add in the real estate brokerage. And that now really completes a full circle where we're able to touch every area of the transaction. So whether it's on the acquisition side, we're able to source deals, find deals through the brokerage, or when we're selling the or renting, we can do that through the brokerage, right? And then we're able to manage either the condo associations or the uh, rental buildings in-house, right? So we're able to hit all sides. And then with our partner at EJO, we're able to build them ourselves. So it's, it's kind great. of, c- c- kind of connects the whole journey. Makes sense. Acquire, build manage sell. You're vertically integrated. Exactly. Yeah. Vertical integration. Do you find that by having the the management side of things with properties that you don't own, 
that you do have an advantage in terms of hearing when they may come to market. So in other words, hey, I'm thinking of selling my triple decker and you're like, hey, you know what? Well, maybe we'll take a swing at it. Well, or, not or even that now that? with the brokerage, if someone in the building wants to sell their condo. So right. yeah, so we've we've had, a, I'd say less than I originally expected. I thought that there'd be more with all the touch points, right? Whether they're these landlords or whether they're a condo owner, with all the touch points, there'd be more opportunities. I'd say in the life of the of the brokerage, we've probably had maybe five to 10 leads come directly from the management, but it's not as much as I originally expected. I think what that really comes down to is the real estate industry is very crowded. Everyone has five or five friends who are, are real estate agents. And so- and an, and an uncle and a sister. Exactly. Or they'll sell it themselves. <laughs> right. So then you end up, you're like, you know, yes, even if you're you're the first one that's there, you're the one that's managing the building, are they going to use you or are they going to use their sister? Right. And so that's kind of when- Not everyone's a notary comes. though. That's true. That is a very- It's a very important thing to have in an office. And so- very, yeah. I, My wife's getting her PhD tomorrow, but I am a notary public still. So I'm honored is, to be in yeah. in the room with you right now. Thanks, thanks Ricky. I know. I know. <laughs> I tell people don't treat me any differently. I'm the same old Mark Savatsky. What's your role in the brokerage? Are you, are you involved in the day-to-day or are you- kind of step back or like because obviously you have you know you have the management you have the development you have the brokerage so you have a lot of different businesses now so what's kind of your are you like what's your overarching role in the day-to-day on all of these businesses don't forget santa con (laughs) (laughs) no haven't done done bar crawl since covid come on um on the brokerage side it's kind of a more of a big picture owner right so looking at the like the direction of the company from the top trying to see the direction we're going to go how we're going to uh, you know add more agents how we're going to source more deals how we're going to help the teams grow whereas our, Ryan Acone is the managing partner he's the one who's in charge of the day to day so like he makes day to day decisions he's the one who oversees the company whereas i'm working side by side with him but in more of a step back role on the management side, it's you know I've got a great team that that works on the management side. We actually just hired another uh, another individual who joined the joined the management side. So in that role, I'm in the same thing. I've, I've I've really tried to pull myself back and let my the the people that work for me take you know much more uh, leadership roles. You know now we have Dan who runs all the rental side of the business. We've got Mike who just joined who's going who's overseeing all the condo sides, and then my wife does all the books and all the back office stuff. So I'm able to then still take a role that allows me to step back. Because yeah, when you have all these different businesses going, you can't be right. deeply ingrained right. in anything. It's really just from you know being in a management role. Sorry. Can we get off brokerage for a second? I have a question about uh, real estate development. We're not talking about brokerage, we're talking about hmm. business. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to do more rentals, right? Here's real talk. I have two four unit townhouse projects coming up. I wanna do one of them as rentals and the other as condos. I went back to the bank and asked them to approach the second one as rentals and help me look at attempt to perm financing on that. They want an additional $200,000 of equity to allow me to carry that forward as rentals. How do you do it? Like, wait, I don't know if there's a good answer here, but you just it seems to me like rentals are so difficult because you need to park so much cash and be willing to let it sit there and you can't deploy yeah, it again. Uh, you yeah. I mean, I think what and like everyone, a lot of people ask me that question and like, well, why are you all of a sudden building these big rental buildings? And it's like, because it's really a game of scale, Yep. right? It's, I've, I've had so many condo projects over the years that I was like, I really wish I could make this pencil 
as a rental. They don't. And they just don't. It's just really difficult to get them to pencil. And so what ends up happening is we've, I've had deals where I've actually, I had a deal where I attempted to do that. Yeah. And only time I've ever been denied at loan committee was, was on a 15 unit deal that I was trying to build as a rental. And that's the only time I've ever had a loan denied at loan committee. And it was, it got to that point and they were like, yeah, we're not comfortable with this deal as a, as a, as a rental. Did they make you just switch to, to the condo play then? I mean, I assume you probably had it already on a contract and further along, or, or was that early on? Yeah. So, I mean, luckily I had actually acquired the property as a three family. And so I, I owned the three family and then I was going through the process oh, of see. getting a construction loan to build it into a rent, you know, 15 unit rental building. But yeah, I mean, after that, I was pissed. I mean, I was like, you know, I'll never work with you again. We went through all the underwriting and you get to loan. No deal should get to loan committee and get denied. 100%. By that point. 100% agree. You know, so. So Dan, you were saying something similar to me last night. Yeah, I think that, I think in, especially in where we are, right, Boston, with dirt costs the way they are and construction costs where they are, the smaller deals ground up rentals in our market unless you're building to scale, the numbers just don't pencil for the smaller projects. I think it, it works if you're taking, like for instance, we bought that eight unit building, existing eight unit building, 2020, and we, we, we renovated it. Yeah. And those deals work, right? Mm -hmm. Because the, the renovation cost of its cosmetics, it's much lower. Those deals work because you can do a recap and pull some money out. But but does that work if you couldn't pull the land off like these guys? It did. No, it did. it did. We didn't need did. the land. That's I, why. That's just icing. I mean, this was a, an opportunity born from COVID, right? So you know, we actually weren't even the first buyer, a seller. Sorry, buyer that the seller accepted. We were like second or third in line, and and they came to us because when COVID happened was after the first person bought it or, or put it under contract. And so then COVID happened, the buy, the that buyer got like cold feet or something happened and backed out and then they came to us. So yeah, I think I think in in our market, if you want to do ground up rentals, you need to do it at scale. Or or if you want to do smaller rental or smaller rental play, then you need to do a kind of a repurpose renovation. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at it like and this is, you know, a lot of people think that their land is worth so much money. <laughs> and then you're you're like, well, I can really only pay you forty k per approved unit so if i get three units right we're talking about 120 grand no one wants to sell their vacant lot for 120 grand but that's what it would need to be to be able to build it as a rental yeah right and so the numbers have to be like typically like 40k or under and and you start to look at it and you say well why is that the, why is that well let's say okay it's going to cost say 300,000 to build a unit now right yeah, give or take 300 gray yeah you know so 300k is about what the going rate is now per door to build mm. hard cost so if you're building it for 300, you've got your soft cost of say 50, mm -hmm. you've got 50K in land purchase, you're into each unit for 400, a three unit, you're already into it for 1.2. In a lot of areas of Boston, you can buy a three family for 900. So you're already into the new construction for 300,000 more than the comps. Yep. Right. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't. I, I that, mean, and that, uh, sorry, going yeah. back, like, and that's why the smaller projects all pencil for condo development because your price per foot on the resale on a condo is, you know, seven eight hundred. Yeah, it's like wow. twice as high as your acquisition and renovation. So, but you know what? If all of a sudden tomorrow they came out and said the, the the city came out and said we're no more condo development, like you can't convert buildings because we have a housing crisis, right? The market prices will adjust. 
I'd imagine you wouldn't be able to, you, they'd have to, because if the only product you could put out is multifamily, no, you guys don't believe in that at all. Will they ever do that? I was going to say, I said, what if, what, said, what, are if, your thoughts, if, if, if. what are your thoughts on this? I may just put down the, the capital and let it, let it sit there on the table for a few years because a I'm tired of paying capital, ordinary income and short-term capital gains. And B, I think that this part of this neighborhood is going to go gangbusters with a lot of the stuff planned in the next couple of years. And I think I'm going to look back and feel like a sucker. Well, or what you could do is you could take some of the gains that from the other four was, unit and parlay it and use that. I was going to say just, I mean, hush, hush. Yeah. Like, yeah. But like, you know, take the project forward as, yeah. as what is it? Eight condos. Yeah. yeah. And then the goal is you, you know, your plan from the start is eight condos. If, if by the time you finish, you're able to sell off four of them and keep four of them. Right. Well, no, no, it's two separate. It's not the same. They're two, co- but that's I can a, finance both yeah. as condos and not have to put down the two hundred today. Right? Yeah, that's interesting. And and but the the risk to me there is that interest rates are going up. So in a year's and a half's time, uh, maybe I'm paying a higher interest rate, but I get to hold on to some cash for right. a little longer. Right? Or if the market changes and you can't sell them as condos, then you have that only other option, which is the apartment play. You know, so, and the other the other thing too mm. is maybe you don't. You know, maybe you keep. Uh, you don't keep the whole building, yeah. right? Yeah. You keep one in each, that's, right? Or keep two in each. Or sell half. That, that's yeah. a hedge. That's a good hedge. You know? And then the other cha- the other <clears> question <throat> you get into, which Dan and I have talked a lot about, is like, so if you are going to go rentals with it, like, do you change your spec? Do you change the finishes? Where do you? And and I've kind of landed on that. It's like, no. I'm uh, Maybe aside from appliances, I think I'm doing the same wood floors, the same kitchen. Yeah. I mean, I think what we, what you start to see is that the the finishes are such a small, yeah. small line item in these projects that there's no real reason to cut corners. And anyone I watch on these projects that are cutting corners on their final finishes, I'm just shocked. Yeah. Well, like, then you, you know that they completely botched their initial underwriting right, if they're right. doing that. But they're getting to the end and they're just using like a, going to Home Depot and picking up a 50 cent tile to put it on the floor. I'm like, yeah. just take a little bit of time and spend, you know, find the tile that's three dollars. It's that's such a small yeah, scope right. in the in the, the cement th- board, the thin set, the tile mechanic. All these numbers are the same, right? All the same. Put a, put a nice tile in. Exactly. <clears throat> so I think you know, even on our our rentals that we do, when we do right now, we have a lot of voucher rentals, right? So we do a, a large number of Section Eights, and what we've learned is that when we buy the buildings, we always do our renovations. Because that's just the you know the process. We buy them, we get them there, we do a renovation, and we still put in nice white kitchens, quartz countertops like Calcutta Laza with nice veining, farm sinks, really nice faucets and handles. And what we've seen is those units rent extremely quickly. And uh, whereas if we were to just do like brown cabinets that just aren't that same like feel, you're going to be going a lot longer on the rental side. And so it the cost to do that is negligible negligible if it costs you five grand more to do all it's like it's not like what is what's the savings in the long run right right so 100 percent agree yeah Yeah. so yeah so maybe you have you have a lot of options mark actually some interesting options this was good uh you know group therapy here think through think through some things it is hard ground up ground up rentals are hard if it's a smaller project it's it's almost impossible to make the numbers work I mean, have has any of us seen anyone successfully build a small rental building? No. In Boston? I I actually find it really hard to make the numbers work on what you've described as like the uh buy a four unit uh multi that's in decent shape, maybe do a little reno or don't do reno and make money each month. 
I, I don't see much that comes on market. I think it depends where. In, in Boston is what I'm saying. It's one of those things, it, it, it's really, you have to be patient, right? And like, I think, you know, we bought, you know, we bought a large number of rentals last year. I think we bought 60 units last year, ranging from uh, a bunch of three families. And the largest one we bought was 29 units. And it's really about patience and understanding what are the current rents? What do you need to do? And what's going to drive those increased rents? So like when we bought that 29 unit property, a lot of the rents were, you know, two beds were rented about 1400, right? So we were buying it at about a five, five and a half cap, but we knew that those two beds in Dorchester in that area should definitely be 21 to 2400. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yes, we're buying in at about a five and a half cap. By the time we clean those units up and re-rent them, which we've been doing, we're getting 2300. That's a huge shift. Mm -hmm. in in the rents mm -hmm. so and I, and I think to your point also it also depends on where you're buying i think that there's still opportunity but you need to go to these fringe neighborhoods in boston if you want to look in the city because that's where you can still find some decent opportunity mm -hmm. and to your point the voucher program is super valuable i feel in some of these neighborhoods because it's north of the market rents it's no it, uh, yeah in that, that that yeah. building that we bought in 2020, our market rent is probably 18, 1900 a month for a two bed. And we're getting 23, 2400 a month for, for a voucher. So, you know, it, I think you need to pay attention when you're underwriting it, pay attention to the location. Cause I think a lot of these like, like Southie and like these higher end market rate neighborhoods, it's impossible to find something that you're not going to get like a four or five cap. In and I think a lot of people, yeah. You know, I've run the numbers on some like some of these Southeast sales. It's crazy. There's no way it pencils. Like, I, and the person, I don't, somebody, I don't but understand. somebody's buying it. Who is buying it? It's I is think, it 1031 money? Is I that think it? A, I think a lot of them is people who are using. If you're using cash, and you're and you're happy with getting a three percent return on your money, <laughs> it's but right? that's that's a yeah. that's a parking a lot of cash. Right, but I think a lot of you know my the thought is if I mean, someone it's not all cash, you could you could buy a one six building and just put seven hundred into it. And your mortgage is going to be this and your rents will look big, but. Right. And so in that scenario, though, I think a lot of these, you're buying in these markets, you are understanding that the value, the, the property will never go down. Yeah. So it's, it's an investment. If it's even making a 3% or 4% return per year, you're looking at, you're like the, the value of this building is going up and you're buying it more for appreciation and no downside. And I'm holding it for 20 to 30 years. And, right. but you know, but that, but you have to have like mound of cash available to be able to do that right like where i we, like we're much more in the fringe neighborhoods i'd much rather be well you want more aggressive growth <clears throat> right i want to be buying somewhere where we're going to see serious rent growth mm -hmm. where we're going to see the values continue going i see boston is boston is just expanding boston's tiny in the scheme of every other major city right new, new york um la like we're, we're such a tiny population that if you look at like the areas of dorchester where it's like it seems right now that that's like the fringe is far in, in many other cities. That's like downtown. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so like, I think you start to look at it and that same with like Everett and Chelsea and these communities that, you know, people are like, you know, we're looking at the sky tower project and people are like from out of, from New York or DC are like, Oh, it's in Boston. And we're like, no, it's half a mile from Boston. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, so it's in Boston. We're like, no, it's actually in Everett. But like their brain thinks of it as like, well, yeah. the city should be a 15 mile radius is what a city is, yeah. not Boston, which is, you know, tiny. I think, um, was it, I think Jonathan 
Burke might have posted something on his Instagram <coughs> a week ago, and it was like a map. There was a proposal back in the day that they wanted Boston proper to encompass like all the way out through like Brookline, all the way up to Lynn. Like they wanted a, like Boston to be a much much larger land area than it actually ended up being today. And that, I mean it. it it well, Boston, been, I mean, Boston I, at one point did not include Dorchester, but they annexed it in or, or whatever the term well, is. Yeah. What was the thing that a lot of it had to do with whether water. it was municipal water? Yeah. yeah. But uh, Jonathan Lee, Jonathan Burke is joining us uh, next week. Uh, also posted something about uh, South Bay Center, which is a large shopping area. And the mass of that parking lot, that that little development there in this, and the Home Depot and such is like the size of the back bay. Yeah, like, <laughs> it is frightening when you it's think enormous. how many, yeah, how it just kind of goes to your point of how small. And it's such a battle to go vertical in that particular neighborhood. That's also. true too. So it's like wild. one, we have a very small concentrated city and two, it's mostly three-story brownstones. Yeah, it's not dense at all. It's triple deck. It's mostly triple deckers and brownstones. I think that's, you know, when is the city going to realize that going up and adding height is going to have to happen? right? There's only so much land. We have to be able to go higher. And like the impact, I know people think there's going to be massive impacts by going from a three to a four to a five to a six. It's in it, it, what it can do for the housing stock and how many units can fit. Or affordability. Or affordability. Like it's 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 what's going to have to happen. It's just how, how long is that going to take? Love it. Well, hey, I think it's been an awesome conversation. Yeah, I think I'm we agreed. have. It's been. If we're going to leave it on one thing, I, I want to know your uh, fitness routine now. And, yeah, you're uh, looking. You're looking svelte. Yeah, tell us what is it? Two days a week. So uh, with AWP Master Shredder. Yeah. So this is your best social media content. If I could give you some <laughs> constructive feedback. So three days a week with Master Shredder. Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays for an hour, and then the other other days a week. You know, two to three days a week doing either the Peloton or a run. But then it's mostly just been, you know, accountability, right? So I think the main a thing- Diet. Yeah, it's diet and accountability of being at the gym. Like in all of our, you know, a lot of people in our industry were, and everybody who's out there, very busy, right? You don't take the time to, to care about your health. And so like when I was looking at it, I was heading into 35, two kids, I was 305 pounds. And I was like, I'm not going to die young. I'm, and like, I've, I've made business and my like, and family a priority, but I've never made my health a priority over the past 10 years. So it was, it was really just to, you know, to flip the switch. And so at that point I had, you know, someone, I, you know, I guess someone had said to me, they're like, oh, you should get a trainer. And my response had always been, I don't need a trainer. I know how to work out. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, and they were like, Rick, you're, you're, you're buying accountability. You're not buying a trainer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know how to do the lifts, but you're buying accountability. Someone's going to give you a hard time if you're not there at 7am every day. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, once my eyes opened to that, that's what's really like shifted it. And now it's like, no, I have to be at the gym, right? I have to follow the diet. So I'll, I'll tell you, I, I took a Peloton class that you took. Fucking crushed me. <laughs> well, I want, You're I want killing it, man. This. You're I killing want, it. I want in here. Let's go. Does that translate, you think, to the uh, business side of things as well? Like accountability on the business side or? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'd always been extremely dedicated and, you know, driven when it came to all the businesses that I was, you know, working on. And, you know, I think what I'm kind of the opposite way, right, is I just, I had not directed that towards fitness or health. And so, like, I was able to take everything that I do from a day-to-day -day basis of being dedicated and driven and, you know, concentrating on something and pushing it into, hey, you know. Before, before we close out here, um, 
you uh, are close friends with our close friend, Dave Grossman from the Grossman Companies. Would you mind giving a quick plug for uh, Grossman Companies and uh, we'll feed this in? Yeah. So uh, Dave and I have been friends and now business partners over the past uh, you know, couple of years. And you know, if you guys need any type of loan, hard money loan, they're the best in the business. There's been many times in my career where we've needed someone to put up uh, you know, capital in a very short notice. And uh, Dave and his team has been have been quick to act and get us to the closing. And it's, uh, you know, make sure you guys reach out. Well, awesome. Well, well, hey, thank you everybody for uh, lading, or, or rating, <laughs> uh, reviewing, and sharing the episode. Ricky, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Take care. See you on the next one. Peace.